type of Christian that can be able to praise the Lord when things aren't going according to my plan. Now, I'm sure I'm like the majority of the rest of you Christians here today that I have big ideas and big plans and big things of what I think will happen. And it's just amazing. The Lord won't listen to them. I mean, you're just thinking, duh, Lord. Don't you know who I am? He said, yeah, I know who you are. You're a dummy. You don't know what needs to go on, boy. Shut up and follow me. Quicker we learn that we're dummies, better off we'll be. Most of us really have put in our resume to be God several times in our Christianity. Now, you laugh at that, but if you really think about your life, how many things that God has done, and you've questioned him over and over again, and give him, well, God, I don't understand. I think and I believe, and why didn't you? Because he's God, and you're a dummy. God ain't never been a dummy, never will be a dummy. He's the almighty, he's supreme, he's omnipotent, and he knows what we need, even when we don't. So to be able to praise him when things are going bad and difficult, I'll tell you, that's, that's a real Christian to me. We greet you today in the name of the Lord. I hope it didn't make everybody mad. <laughs> Let's turn to the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 3. Let's speak again a little bit today about the absolute. How many has one? Everybody does. Everybody in the building does. Everybody in the world has an absolute. Everybody does. <clears throat> What your absolute is certainly can cause you a lot of trouble or cause you a lot of benefit. It really just depends on what the absolute is. Job chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none, none like him in the earth. A perfect and an upright man. One that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Now this is the type of enemy that you and I have. One that is so bold that would approach the throne of God and try to move God's being against his very elect. Now, when a challenge like this is made, there's only one thing God can do, and that is use his children to prove his word. Use his children to prove his word. Notice the, the accusation was not against the son. Not against the moon or the stars or the earth. It was against God's servant. So God is not going to use the sun or the moon or the stars to prove this statement is false. Who's he going to use? The individual that has been charged. So God uses us to prove his word. May God help us. I may like to be remembered today as we, as we pray. Brian Goodwin from Kentucky, sick with COVID. Brother Joel just said here. Also, uh, I'd heard earlier this morning that Brother Ben Norrod was sick 
Um, so I text him a bit ago before I came to church to check on him. And uh, he's in the hospital, has double pneumonia, uh, but they haven't um, clarified whether it's COVID pneumonia or just tubercular type of pneumonia. But I know he would appreciate our prayers today. I also want to continue to remember those who've lost loved ones in our assembly, that God would just comfort their hearts and help them. How many of you have a special need or request you'd like to make known to the Lord today? Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We're so grateful for the opportunity, Lord, that you've given us that we can assemble today. We've been hearing the songs that's been sung this morning, Lord, and most of them have carried one common theme. That is that we are going to win and we're going to be victors and we are victorious. And uh, no matter what Satan tries to do, you'll turn it around. I don't believe these singers all got together and chose all these songs, but I believe that you had them chosen for us today. That they would bear one message and that is that we might be encouraged in the time that we're living. Father, we thank you for that. Once again, it shows us your great love that's been extended to us. You saw the hands that were uplifted, hundreds of them. Father, they signify various types of needs. No doubt the streaming audience, Lord, many of them raised their hands from Australia and New Zealand and France and London and different parts of the world, different parts of Canada. So you see their needs as well. We bowed our heads today to the earth from which we came and we... By doing that, we testify that there is a great and mighty God that is above us. Not only above us, but in us. And we ask for your will to be done. That you'd speak to us today from your word. That you'd minister to the sick, the afflicted. Father, those that have lost loved ones, we're praying for them today for comfort to them, Lord. Help them. Lord, some of them I know it's so fresh and the pain is so deep. They may feel like they don't even have a reason to live. But may the Spirit of God, I pray, help each heart today, Father. Minister to us according to your grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen. God bless you, saints. You may be seated. Also wanted to say an <clears throat> appreciation of Brother Calvin and Sister Ruth. They're 74 years of marriage tomorrow. Isn't that awesome? It's wonderful. Amen great brother and sister that we love and appreciate so much in the Lord. We know from this verse that something is fixing to happen and it's going to take a deeper plunge into the mercy of God. It's going to be more difficult for Job. When God says such things about an individual, that individual's fixing to pay. God makes such a comment about a person that they have been tried. And we looked at it already that he lost 10 children, hundreds of sheep, hundreds of she-asses and camels and <clears throat> so much wealth, plus the embarrassment that the man would have faced every day. For we know that of all the men of the East, he was the greatest. A man that was so astounding in his wisdom and his understanding that he relates to us further into the book of Job that whenever he would go into the marketplace, people would just come in. 
just to ask for a moment of his time, just for a few words of his wisdom, because he was such an astounding man. And of course, all of that was the grace of God. It was not that Job had went to the university in Chaldea. He had not went to the university in the land of Uz, or not went to the Northwestern Arabian University. But Job had been taught by God. And there was something about this fellowship that spoke even to the people around him could know there was something different about him. But now he's so embarrassed, so humiliated. You imagine that his head, whenever he was still able to walk and get about, his head would have been hung in shame. People pointing their fingers and mentioning his name and talking about him. I stood in a place just a few weeks ago at a funeral home, and I hadn't been in this area in quite some years, but as I was there and greeting the family, I heard people mentioning my name, people pointing at me as I was standing there. They weren't even trying to hide it. This one said Donnie Reagan this, Donnie Reagan that. I felt my face as it turned red and flush. You know how we are as humans. It's embarrassing. And Job must have been so embarrassed whenever he was still able to walk uh, that he would go into the marketplace and instead of people running up and grabbing a hold of his hand and speaking to him, could I have just a word? Just a word, Brother Job. Just, just one word. But they was kind of putting their hand over their mouths you know, as if to, to be in silence, but yet whispering it loud enough that Job would be able to hear it. We know the Lord Jesus actually experienced that. And one of the instances in the gospel, the prophet picked it up and said that the Lord Jesus, whenever they said these certain words to him, to shame him. And it was just as if though the Lord got embarrassed. Now the Lord did that not only for his sake, but for the sake of his children. He knew there would be countless of thousands of his children that would be called before great people, great men. They would be laughed at, humiliated, made fun of. And they needed a high priest which could understand the feeling of shame and embarrassment. So the Lord Jesus allowed himself to feel ashamed and embarrassed. You sisters that are laughed at and ridiculed and made fun of, most of the time more than us men, because of the way you dress and the way you do. And you may feel an element of embarrassment and shame when you know that people are laughing at you and pointing their finger at you and they'll put their hand over their mouths. But never fear, the Lord Jesus understands how you feel. And when whenever we go through these types of things, it's really an, an upgrade in our trial whenever we move from the initial stage to where God begins to use the embodiment of the word integrity. Now God never used this word whenever the first testimony about Job was given, even though it was there. But the integrity had now moved to a different phase. Job's integrity was great. 
But the integrity could only be personified in a greater way when the trial got greater and harder and intensified. Now, many people that have tried to serve the Lord, and God tries every one of them, whether they're sons and daughters of God, of course, he knows that by election and predestination, but everyone that comes to Christ will be tried. And they will speak by their behavior whether they are sons and daughters or not. Every son that cometh to God must be tried. So God will allow everyone who professes the name of Christ and that title of Christianity to be tried. Some can't take the reproach of clothes. Some cannot take the reproach of their friends laughing at them, and they will drop off. And Jesus gave us several parables, of course, in the Bible, in the New Testament, of how that when the persecution came, they would fall away. But the children of God are able to go on and move from the first initial stage up to the stage of integrity. You see, each trial that becomes greater enhances a divine attribute which has been given to us by the grace of God. Job's first trial was horrendous. It must have been awful. To lose 10 children in one day, it's unnatural. It's not natural for parents to have to bury a child. It's not natural for a child to precede a mother, a father in death. And those of you that have experienced such, you know the feeling that is there and it feels like your world has come to an end. That you have nothing else to live for. And for those of us who've not been there, we don't know exactly what you're feeling. Now it's easy for us to say, well I know what you're going through. It's not if you haven't experienced it. Praise the Lord. But those who went through such trials and such trauma of life, and those of you who have, you know the depths of that anxiety that you feel inside of your body. It's not just in your mind, but that anxiety registers so deep in our spirit, in our soul, in our conscience, in every aspect of our being, it's like we do not even want to live another day. And like that something has been so taken out of our life. And then of course, when God don't tell us why he does it, then Satan will come and he'll try to say now, God, you say God loves you and God cares for you. Then how could God be so mean and so cruel to take something from your life, the very joy out of your life. And then your mind, of course, goes to pondering and wondering whether it's a child or a wife or a husband or whatever it could be in your life. And those of you that have experienced such a thing, you know that the trauma and the anxiety that you feel, it's beyond words to even describe it. It is beyond your ability to even express how you feel. But there's such a heaviness within you. 
And that within you begins to manifest itself on the outside. And when you get around people, they sense it. And you're not trying to make people feel sorry for you, but it's just so real to you that you cannot hide it. Now we all know that all of us are pretty good to a certain degree of hiding an element of our feelings. And we might feel pretty bad, but we go ahead and press beyond it. But there are certain degrees of such things that we cannot hide it. I don't care how good we are at it. It is so deep. It is so severe. And the spirit is so broken and so contrite that we don't even care to try to hide it. Now, Job must have been already from phase one of this trial. Now, phase two is fixing to break forth. And now God, at the initiation of this, as I said, did not mention integrity, but the trial has gone on and he loses sheep and he loses possessions. Those things can be replaced. He loses 10 children, seven sons, three daughters. But now Job is fixing to move into a second phase. So at the beginning of it, integrity was not mentioned, but at the end of phase one, integrity has now been brought about and Satan is accusing God's child. And God is going to use his word to prove his testimony about that child. Now, he said he holds fast his integrity. And in other words, he is persevering in yielding in obedience to God, even when he doesn't understand what God is doing. Now, if God come to us and explain to us, now look, Fred, you're fixing to go through a trial, and it's because of this and this and this and this, but I want you to know I love you and I care for you, and look, Wes, you're fixing to go through this, and, and Wade, you're fixing to go through that, but don't fear, I'm with you, everything's good, everything's good, then it wouldn't really take a whole lot of faith for us to be able to believe God. But many times through those great times of tests, the Lord remains silent. He doesn't tell you why. He doesn't explain it to you. He just expects you to believe him. Now, though true religion has been tried since the very beginning of the dawn of creation, Satan and his cohorts of hell still want to present it to humanity that it is not trustworthy, that it is a bunch of make-believe, that you cannot commit your soul to it, even though God has proved it over and over and over again and through the countless ages, through the lives of believers. But it's as if though Satan renews his vision and his attack upon the word of God, the principle of God, the plan of God, the mind of God, the heart of God, on and on and on we can go. It's as if though he renews it daily. And his attack comes from one angle to another to another. And God must prove in every age. Don't you understand? It was not just enough that God vindicated his prophet with the message. But once the message is delivered to a people, then those people must be tried to see if they will still maintain it even under great opposition. It was that way in the days of Paul, that way in the days of Luther, Arrhenius, Columba, all of those men. And no, in this day, the prophet said that the bride must be tried by every word. So God has actually made statements about the bride in this day, that she's not like Eve, 
that she's sinless, she's pure, she's righteous. There's no one like her. She's beaten gold. She is the expression of the Godhead body. God has made tremendous statements about the bride in this day. Well, that is God testifying before the devil about you and I. Well, then Satan has the right to challenge God's statement. And there's only one way that statement can be proved. Oh, you say, well, it's in the book. That's right, it's in the book or it's on the tape, but that's not the way that God proves it. God vindicated the message so you and I could have faith in it. But the way God will prove the message is that God will allow the message to be made manifest in human beings. And then God will tell us that this will happen and the word will be made flesh in the bride and the bride is him, she is him, life of his life, power of his power, bone of his bone, is that right? And then when God says that, then God allows Satan to attack the bride on the very principle that God has said about her. So then God, listen, don't misunderstand me, God then will not, whenever Satan questions what has been said in this day about a bride, God will not turn around and give the devil another quote to refute that quote he's questioning. But God will actually let those quotes and those scriptures be made, I wish somebody would hear me this morning, let those quotes and those scriptures be made manifest in the lives of human beings and God wants to again will take a human and prove his word. Why did Jesus heal the sick when he was here? To prove his word. Now it wasn't just to prove he could do it. Now that's the way we think as human beings. If somebody challenges us, we'll prove it to them that we can do it just on the basis of, well, I'll show you I can do it. God is not necessarily dealing with it in that way because that is the way of man. But God proves it because it is his word. And he loves to prove his word. So God is further expanding now his belief and his confidence in Job. And he says that he holdeth fast his integrity even though you have moved me against him. Notice this. So the grace of God has given Job thus far the amount of grace that was needed to come through the trial. Now that amount of grace will not be enough once the trial expands. Now watch what Satan says in Saint Job brother chapter two, verse four. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life but put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. In other words, Satan is saying to God, every man has his price. Every woman has her price. And Job can raise another family. Job can get more wealth because he still has his health. Job has the ability to start another business. He has the ability to father other children. He has the ability to yet redeem himself. You've still got a part about him that you have sheltered, but take his health from him. Oh my goodness. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold he, oh dear God, he is in thine hand but save his life. 
So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his feet unto his crown. So now Job, it was not like that he had a rash that come out on his arm. And then the next day it got a little more, but it was immediately, immediately this which Modern doctors, by, excuse me, by looking at the terms that we will read here that Job described what he had. Now you have to do a little bit of thorough study on this, but Job lays out the symptoms of what he's dealing with. And doctors call this that Job described elephantiasis. And it is the worst form of leprosy. And it causes the skin to turn hard and it will crack. Now this is the advanced stage of it. And it actually causes a human body to look like the hide of an elephant. Now this hit Job all of a sudden. Oh my. Now whenever this extreme form of this comes and it will attack the body, it, it begins with boils, but it was an immediate coverage all over his body, but it spreads with a tendency sort of like cancer, but it is a leprosy. And then eventually it will eat the arm, the fingers, and so on, and it will cut the circulation off and the limbs will drop off. So a person will get it so bad, and under this elephant type of skin, are these boils with this profuse itching that is there. Now remember who this is that we're talking about. So one of the real horrendous symptoms of this is itching, profuse itching. Job chapter two, verse eight. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat among the ashes. So it's not like, you know how it is with your fingernails that if you're itching that you take a sharp service. It doesn't really do any good to take the pad of your fingers if you're itching. But you need something a little bit more severe. So what do we do? We generally will turn our fingers up this way, and we will use our fingernail, and we will scratch ourselves. Job scratched with his fingernails, but they were not enough. He said him now, oh my, a reject from his friends. He is a reject from his servants, from even his family. And we know from the end chapter of the book of Job that Job had siblings. Job had brothers and sisters. And when Job got better, the Bible says each one of them brought him a coin. Now you say, where were they when he needed them? Now listen to me carefully. It's amazing how when God allows his people to go through things that are so stressful, that sometimes God will even allow your friends and sometimes your family to seem so cold towards you. Now you think, they didn't really, Job didn't really need them when things got better. When Job got to be blessed again and got uh, children and all these things that the Bible said happened to him and the wealth that was there, then they showed up on his front doorstep and they was ready to welcome him back in the message now. Because Job had been restored, you think, why didn't they come and bring the man a piece of money? when he was begging. 
Oh my, oh, this is so hard for people to understand. And they try to take the love of God and figure the love of God and measure it by parental love. Now, none of us as parents would ever put our children through this. You think I would put either one of my daughters or my granddaughters through this horrific disease? As I sat and studied this this week, I almost got nauseated. I had to break away from it a little bit because to, to my disadvantage, I have, I have this ability in my memory and in my mind that when I go to preaching something and thinking about something, I can actually get a figurative image of it in my mind. And it's, it's very hard. You may think it's a blessing, but it's very hard on you whenever you do that. But you imagine what a man that this was of such integrity and yet a loving father would allow this to break out on him? Well, he has a reason. Do you believe that? Yeah. Notice, and Job took him a pot chair to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. So this is one of the outstanding things about this elephantiasis, that you start itching and you itch all over. Now, those of you that have never seen the hide of an elephant up close, I've got a briefcase setting on my desk there that the brothers in Zimbabwe gave me, oh my, 20 something years ago. Looks like brand new, because I only use it here at the church. But it's real coarse and, and real thick. And a human skin was not made to turn into such. And under this lays the boils and the sores and worms. So a man would have to take a pot shared, a piece of glass, because his outer skin is like the skin of an elephant. But what you're actually scratching is not the elephant looking skin, but it's the boils that are underneath it. And it's just like a tormenting, haunting type of itching. And what had this man done? Absolutely nothing. Perfect in the sight of God, askeweth evil. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the most perfect man in all the East. Oh, how we miss the will of God. Also, degenerative changes in the facial skin. Now, it must have been terrible. I read it to you last Sunday, I think it was in Job chapter two, verse 12, that when his friends came, when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not. Now, he's already getting the look of death upon him. And the last time they seen Job, he was fair-skinned and his skin was no doubt, they had oils and things that they would use to treat their skin because of this country that they were in. It was so dry that it would dry them out. And as they come up close to where Job lived, he's sitting not even on the porch now, but sitting out in front of the house, we'll say, and there was an ash heap or they'd burnt some logs or something. And he sat out there and he would take this daily and he'd throw it over his head. And they would also use it as a form of comfort to try to ease all the pus that was running out of their body. So as his friends got close and they began to look at him and they saw the dark under his eyes and the skin with this elephantiasis as they get it, their skin begins to blacken and it gets hard and then it wrinkles and then it gets dimples actually inside the skin. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knowing not, they lifted up their voice and wept and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward the heaven. 
So it comes with great itching and also the change, of course, in your features. You also have a loss of appetite. Job 3.24, for my sign cometh before I eat and my roarings are poured out like the water. So you have severe diarrhea. So even when you do eat, that what little bit you do eat goes against you. And then worms get in the boils and running sores. Job 7, 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. So he looks at himself, and as I said, if you've never seen an elephant to see how he looks, these wrinkles are so deep inside of the skin, and there will be dimples inside in between the wrinkles, and the the skin is very, very sick within itself, one of the toughest letters known to man. So Job would look at himself and in his mind. Now remember, he's not able to turn over to the end of the book of Job like you and I. He was not even there when God gave this great testimony about him before the devil. He had not one written verse of scripture. He did not have one of the prophet's tapes. He did not have Happy Valley Church to attend. He had no pastor to come and call him to come and visit him and I see you. He had nobody to bring a guitar and sing a song of encouragement. Even even his wife is fixing to turn against him. He had no one on the earth and Satan is trying to convince him he has no one in heaven that loves him. The only thing that Job had was an absolute revelation that Jehovah had revealed unto him under the form of the name of Almighty God that he was to do one thing, and that was to make an atonement and a sacrifice. It was not written down. He could not go back for encouragement, paste the scripture on his refrigerator. He did not have phones and things like we do today to be able to pull up one encouraging song after another encouraging song, one verse after another encouraging verse. Nope, that's all he had. But he still had an absolute. Watch, he's also, now he moves within. It causes a difficulty in breathing. Job chapter nine, verse 18. He will not suffer me to take my breath. So day in and day out, he's trying to breathe. But this thing so affects the outside of the body and then it moves on the inside and it affects the organs. And your body is sitting there trying to purify the bloodstream, pumping of course the heart. And here's all this rottenness in your body, oh God. You imagine a man like this and God says, there's not a man like him in all the earth. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but he filleth me with bitterness. Also another attribute of this is darkness that would begin under the eyes and start spreading over the skin. My face is foul with weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. So now here he started to take on the image of death. Most of you have seen, uh, I hate to say it all, but it's true. Most of us have seen people that were about to die or getting ready to die and they changed their looks. There's an image if it's been a prolonged disease and you watch them week in and week out, month in and month out, and they change their look 
And Job had now started looking like death. And it seemed as if though to him, he was gonna go by the way of the grave. He had already started taking on the image of death, whereas before this trial, he had the image of life. It seemed that everywhere he looked, all the circumstances were against him. Now listen, friend, I am by no means today trying to belittle anyone here or anyone that's streaming this service by what you are going through, only to encourage you that if God could bring a man like this out of his trouble, God can bring you out of yours. I'm not trying to belittle those of you that have lost a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife and say, well, because you didn't lose 10, you ain't lost nothing. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. But I'm trying to show you that if God moved for this man, God can move for you, my brother. God can move for you, my sister. For you, young person, he loves you. And we may not always understand the will of God, but the will of God is always perfect. Notice this, loss of weight. Naturally, the would-be had no appetite. Job 19, 20, my bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh. So now we would say, let me say it like this so you'll be able to understand it, that Job got to a place instead of being uh, the very image of health and all of that, that Job moved to an image to where he would look like, so you can relate to it, a Holocaust victim. Those of you that have seen pictures of the Jews that were able to survive or those that did not and you've seen pictures of them and they look like basically skin that was stretched over a skeleton which is what many of them were. And this is what Job had turned into. And you imagine a man that was wealthy so he had his pick of foods and delicacies of whatever he would want to eat and no doubt he ate the best in that day so whatever was healthy in that particular time whether it was fruits and vegetables and meats and whatever more, he had his choice. But now Job, he could not eat. His, his, his water was gushing out of him. His system was so full of corruption and vileness and now Job has lost so much weight that he's basically sitting there like a skeleton. So he sits on the ash heap and his knee joints are so swollen and his face is sunk in. What little bit of skin that he has is drying up like the hide of an elephant. Notice when Elihu speaks about Job, he says in Job 33, 21, his flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. So Job is just like a human being there with skin stretched over the skeleton. And then he has this constant pain of Job chapter 30, verse 17. My bones are pierced in me in the night season and my sinews take no rest. So he cannot rest no matter what he tries, no matter how he tries to lay, what position he tries to get into. And he experiences restlessness. We've all been through that. Job chapter 30, verse 27. My bowels boiled and rested not the days of affliction prevented me. So his, his torment is day and night. It's not like that he can just get so exhausted as sometimes we can, that whenever we war with things and we, we just finally go to bed one day or one night, whatever it is, and we just pass out and we're able to sleep four, five, six, eight hours, whatever more. But no matter what Job done, he could never find rest. You imagine his poor skeletal makeup that was left of him. He would try to lay on his side, 
but his pelvis, there was no skin, no muscle hardly left, no sinew that was there, and it would be so painful as if he had rickets. He would lay on his back, but his back had no padding, so the spine was so thin, and they would press against the disc in his back. He would try to lay over on his stomach, no matter which way he would lay, he would turn and toss, and then he would get so exhausted he had no more strength to even turn in whatever uh, shape, position that he was in. He just laid there through the wee hours of the morning, praying, oh God, have mercy. Oh God, what have I done? Show me what I've done, Lord, and I'll repent. I'll change it, Lord. I'll fix it, God. I give you my word. As I said, ladies and gentlemen, I give to you the most perfect man in the East. But if you would be able to walk in Job's front yard and saw such a man, would you consider him the most perfect man in the East? Or would you look at him and say, as his three comforters, this man, there's something, there's something wrong with him. There's sin in his life. Something going on. There was something going on, all right. It was the glory of God fixing to be made manifest in his life. Now, there's no way that we can imagine the physical pain and all this that he went through, and each of us experienced things maybe similar to this, but this is all going on at one time, plus the trauma of losing his kids and how humiliating it is that now people that are passing by, ridiculing, calling him names, laughing at him and whatever more. So his body is covered with all of this cancerous stuff. Some severe cases become almost like the bark on a tree. Now you can imagine that your skin would become so hardened that it would be like the bark on a tree. And it has these cracks and things that are running through it and you're itching to death. You can get no relief and you're itching to death because the itching is not on the bark, as we'd say, but the itching is underneath the bark. Nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody wants to be around you. So there's one thing you have a lot of. Time. Time. Everybody else is busy running here and there, doing this and that and the other. And you're there before daylight awake. You're awake in the wee hours of the morning. You're awake at noon. And what you have is a lot of time. No wonder we say it. It's just a proverbial saying we know, but there's a lot of truth to it. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. And we know in our minds is where the battle rages anyway. So what are we planting here in, in your mind? An image of a man that would be probably one of the worst mortals that you've ever seen. Now, I've been in Africa, I've been in India, I've been in different third world countries, and I've seen leprosy. I've seen people with their noses gone, and their ears part of the way gone, fingers gone. And I don't mind telling you, it's not something that is pleasant at all. But of all the ones that I've seen, I've never seen anything quite like this man here. Because it was the extent of the trial that God was giving, because Satan had made such a charge against Almighty God, God must reverse the charge by proving it in a human being's life. 
Now, how many wants to serve the Lord after this? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, if we was giving away Cadillacs today and BMWs and Maseratis and, and Volvos and all that, my, our church wouldn't contain all the people in the Tri-Cities that want to be serving God. But my friend, I'm not going to paint you a picture of the gospel of hell. The gospel of hell is that you get everything you want in life and you never go through any trials or any tests. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel that Laodicea wants, but it will take you to hell. I want to give you a gospel that will help you in the time of trouble. I know, I realize, there's a lot of folks that don't like the way I preach the book of Acts. They simply don't. They do not like, because when I read the book of Acts, I read miracles, signs, wonders, healings. I also read shipwrecks. I read beatings. I read trials. I read the saints being killed. I read some of them. Come on now. But people want to preach the book of Acts as if though it's all miracles, it's all healing. You're not reading the entirety of the book of Acts. If I'm going to preach the book of Acts, I'm going to preach it the way I read it. And it has trials in it. It has tests in it. It has difficulty in it. But it also has deliverance for every one of those tests. Ultimately, what happens to this disease is slowly... It kills the individual. They get to where their heart can no longer purify the rottenness of the flesh. Their kidneys can no longer, they didn't have dialysis in those days, so their kidneys can no longer take out the toxins. And the bowels stop working and the kidneys slow down and the blood pressure and the heart. And one day they just finally go away. But that was not God's plan at all for this great perfect man called Job. But you see, I'm preaching this with hindsight. Job was living through it. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if you and I had the end of the chapters of our life and the end of the trials that we go through and we could thumb over real fast and go past the hardships and the difficulty and go over to the end of that trial and say, oh, wow, you mean God's going to do that for me? You mean God's going to do this and God's going to do that? We say, praise God, bring it on, devil. But God hides the end. But God wants you and I to have enough confidence and love in him to say, bring it on, devil. I know my father well enough to know he will never let more come upon me than what I am able to bear. But he will give me strength. Come on, saints. Or do we, are we the type of Christians that we have to always look at the end of our trial and then we evaluate whether or not we want to serve the Lord? Well, if you are, you're not bride material. I'll tell you that right now. The bride does not have to look at the end and then decide from the beginning if she wants to serve him. The bride wants to serve him no matter what the end is. As a matter of fact, the prophet said a man come up to him and said, Brother Branham, you know, you're a false prophet and you're preaching this and that and the other. He said, I thought I'd just, you know, kind of break it off in the man a little bit and just give him a little bit. My mom always told me, give the old cow enough rope and she'll hang herself. He said, well, sir, I'll say that you're right. And he said, I'll say if the Lord wanted me to go to hell. 
And the Lord wanted me to be lost. If that's what he would want me to be, then I would want to do that very thing. I would want to do it. He said, but there's no way that I'm going to do that the way I love him. You see, now some of you, that stumbled you, didn't it? Because you don't understand love. You really understand it from a perspective that if God wanted me to be lost, if that's what he really wanted, and that pleased him, so be it. Oh, you say, well, I'd never say that. You know why? Because you're serving God out of selfishness from your own benefit, your own agenda. Oh, I want to go to heaven because I don't want to do this. But it's not just about what you want. It's what about what God wants. Remember the prophet giving us the parable about a man that loved a woman and he loved her so much and say you dreamed. You just dreamed that this married life. You was married to your wife, but actually you wasn't. But you're fixing to marry her. And she'd come to you and said, now you know what? I, I, I love you, but there's another man I love better than you. Ooh. He said, if you love that woman right, you would tell her, God bless you, my dear. Go with the other man. Well, I might as well dismiss, I guess. <laughs> now, you see what he's doing? He's painting to us the image of real love versus selfish love. Well, praise the Lord. I, well, I, I love God because, because why? Well, I don't want to go to hell. Oh, so you don't love him because of who he is. Well, I serve him because I, I don't want to be lost and I don't want to go to hell. You're serving him for the wrong reason. You should serve him and love him because of who he is. Oh my. Then if he would commit you to death, that is his prerogative. If he would commit you to test as he did Job, that is his prerogative. But you love him so much that you go beyond, well, I don't think this is fair. I don't think I should have to go through that. See, you're basing it upon your selfish love. But if you loved him the right way, you'd say the Lord give and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If the Lord smites me, if the Lord does this or that, if that's his will, so be it, God. Uh, this separates the bride from the church, you see. Ma, ma. Job chapter two, verse eight, and he took him a pot share to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes, then said his wife unto him, dost thou retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. So even his help meet is no help. Huh. Job's wife. Now what do we hear out of her, Brother John? You see, God never says his wife is a woman of integrity. God never says that his wife is a great believer. Oh my goodness. God says Job is. His wife did not believe the way Job did. His wife had now become so bitter and resentful toward God. And this is what happens whenever people go through things. And Well, God took my mama and God took my daddy and I had a six-month-old baby and God took my baby and I'll never serve him again. He's mean. He's this or that. You don't know him right. right. 
you do not know him and you do not love him, right? If you did, you would serve him with or without your baby, with or without your house, with or without your home, your car, your job, whatever more. You're serving him because he is who he is, not because he gives you a new car every year or a bigger house every five years or he upgrades your clothes. No, that's not the reason we serve him. We serve him. I'm talking about the bride now. We serve him because he is who he is. That's right. So now his wife turns against him and you can hear from her speech the bitterness. You imagine that she didn't even want to be around him. He said his breath became strange, which is one of, this is one of the attributes on the Hebrew word. One of the attributes of this type of disease that the person's breath would just almost make one vomit when they would get around them, that rottenness and corruption from their body. And she wouldn't even get her, oh Job, I'm so sick of you. Why don't you just curse God and die? You're a burden to me. You're a shame. You're a humiliation to everybody. Just curse God and die. Get out of my hair and leave me alone. You imagine, friend, there was no one there, no one to encourage him. No one where he could go down to the mailbox and get a card out. Brother Larry, we love you and we're praying for you. Sister so-and-so, you've been through this. Just wanted to drop you a line to let you know we love you. Nobody sent him an encouraging text or email or phone call. Nobody to encourage him. Everybody was against him. How was this man able to stand? He had an absolute. I trust you've got one even greater than he had. Now listen to me. This man was not born again. He was seed that was not yet quickened. But that seed had such strength that when the promised seed of the, went out of the mouth of God, united in his soul seed and created such a bond that nothing could sever him. And the water of the blood of life had not even been shed yet on Calvary to quicken that seed. And yet it was so powerful that Job could go through all this that he did, covered over a, over a year's time frame, able to go through all this that he did and still, hallelujah, never charged God foolishly, never cursed, oh my, cursed the name of God and blasphemed the name of God. Oh yeah, he got to complaining and crapping and all that. I understand all of that. But he never did, amen, deny that revelation of the word. He never did. He got weary just like we do. Don't sit there and look at me and act like that you don't growl and complain and grumble when we are going to. Well, come on, church. Oh, but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish virgins. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this did Job, did not Job sin with his lips? Hallelujah. He did. Why? An unquickened, ungermatized absolute. If it could do that, what about a baptism of the Holy Ghost 
that don't just make you jump and shout and run and praise God, but imparts into your soul the very nature of Almighty God. Friends, Job was not a partaker of the divine nature the way Peter says we are after the new birth. Notice in Job chapter two, verse 13, when his friends come and they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights and none spoke a word unto him for they saw that his grief was very great. Oh, oh, what is it? The painful will of God. I don't mind telling you there's been excerpts of my life and your life that have been 100% in the will of God. But they were so painful, I didn't think I'd survive. You tell me it's not painful when God will take a baby from its mother's embrace and put it in a grave. God will take a companion. Look at Jacob, the wife that he loves so dearly, Rachel. She gives him Joseph, and then she gives him another one. In her childbirth labor pains, Rachel dies. And as she's dying, she names the child. But she names it out of her cries and pangs of death. Child of bitterness. Child of sorrow. But Jacob said, no, not Benoni. Being Yamin. Benjamin. Benjamin. What was it? The pain, the heartache, the brokenness, the painful will of God. Why would God let his favorite wife his favorite wife, the only one he really, really loved. Oh, he wouldn't have cried near as much if Leah would have died. He wouldn't have cried near as much as one of the handmaids would have died, Bill and the other. That wouldn't have been no big deal, but God, why her? Why her? The painful will of God. You see, the prophet called it by another term, the tender hand of Jehovah, how he will lead his little children sometimes through sorrow, sometimes through difficulty. Oh, and we look at it if we're not careful but that revelation in our heart and we'll become like Job's wife. Oh, why did God do this and God do that and do something else? My. But if we can only see that our father can never lie, and if we can come back to the prophecy in Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. They are of good and not of evil. Listen to this in the absolute, the prophet said he held on to it. When his comforter said, you've sinned, he knowed he had not, he was just. He had done Jehovah's bidding. Then when he come to the spot when the absolute hell then finally began to reel the string, tighten up, feel the string, tighten up, brother. And he began to running loose, bouncing around, but he began to tighten up and the spirit come on him. And he stood up being a prophet and said, 
I know my Redeemer liveth. He had tightened up to his absolute. He had come in contact. Friend, what does hard times do? What does difficulties do? I realize for most of us, this is the first pandemic, the COVID thing, that many of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. Brother Jerry Phillips told me something years ago <clears throat> that when he remembered it as a boy, that here in Elizabeth in Johnson City, it was when the flu came through here, <clears throat> I think it was 1957, that he remembered as a boy going by people's houses and seeing caskets sitting on the front porch, sitting out on the yard. People dying, people that they could not help. Most of us, the only way we know about that is someone tell us about it or reading about it. But can you imagine living in the days of Martin Luther and the days of the bubonic plague when millions died? Were the Christians exempt? No, Martin Luther said a great thing. He said, I will fumigate. I will spray the air. I will wash my hands. I will do this and that and the other. But he said, if there is a brother in need, I will not stop. So you imagine down through the ages, there's been different plagues and things that have struck the human race. And if you know your history very well, you know that for many of them, the saints of God were right there laboring right among it. I do not believe God wants his people to be terrified of COVID. Let me just give you an analogy. In my basement, I have a compound miter saw. I have a 12 inch chop saw which comes down like this and will do the miter cuts. I have a table saw. I have several routers, Dremel tools, drill press, different types of tools. I respect those tools. I've seen what can happen to a finger when it's run through a table saw. But I am not so afraid of my table saw that I'm afraid to use it. I do respect it. Amen. And if I ever respect it, no more guitar playing. I respect the diseases, the evils, so on, that's in the earth, but I am not going to live my life under the fear of COVID-19, 20, 21, 87, 75. I am not, I'm gonna do everything I can to protect you and protect myself, but I'm gonna rip boards, I'm gonna set up my table saw as I've been doing, and I'm gonna rip them and I'm gonna push through, and every time I start that thing, I say, Lord, keep watching over me. You know I'm a dummy. I ain't got a whole lot of sense when it comes to this. Or I can set it in the corner and say, oh, that's such a nice DeWalt saw. That blade is so sharp. There ain't no telling what that thing would do, but I'm scared to use. It. I'm terrified to use it. And that's the way we can be in these troublesome times 
well, I, I'm, I'm afraid and I'm scared and I'm afraid, I'm scared, and you're scared to death. My Lord, if anybody was to sneeze in the church this morning, it'd probably be the fastest dismissal Happy Valley Church has ever had. Y'all be running out the windows, you'd be going out the back doors, oh my goodness. Why? Because fear is gripping our hearts. Let me tell you something, friend. It is not pleasing to the Spirit of God when our lives are motivated by fear. We ought to be motivated by love, not fear. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Notice when the string tightened up. Job 19, 25, I know that my Redeemer liveth and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Though after my skin worms destroy. They're in the process right then. You see, it's easier for us to stand here today. I don't see none of you that's got worms going in and out of your bowls. But this man, by revelation, Harry, would be able to look right down and say, though these worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh I will see God. What was it? An absolute. Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Well, you say, well, that's good enough for him. No, let me just tell you, it's not just good enough for him, it's good enough for you. As a matter of fact, the prophet says it this way, if you just take this real absolute Christ, anchor yourself in that, it don't make no difference what comes or goes, you're still anchored. Again, he says, if Christ is your absolute, you are tied to him. In time of trouble, the ship, let it rock. It'll break against the rocks. What do you do? You drop the anchor. The anchor drags until it snags into the rock foundation, and the ship is tied to the anchor. It's the absolute for the ship. And a bioma, a born-again Christian, is tied to Christ, and the Bible is the anchor. And he said, the stabilizers are put out on it. Christ revealed in his own word, 822.65. Anybody know what a stabilizer is on a boat? A few of you? Okay. 1932, 33, something like that, they started working with them. Because they kept dealing for centuries with ships that would be capsized. So the ship was streamlined, so it would sail this way. But what about if a wind comes across like this? How do you keep it up? So they started dealing with them, and a couple of engineers come up with some initial designs, and it was like turbos that would stick out the side. And whenever the wind, say, would hit this side, this thing would pop out, and it would be a big, gigantic turbine, which would turn the water, and it would prop the ship back up. As they went on in time, they realized there must be a better way. So from that time on, a few years after that, up until now, they buried the stabilizers in between the outer shell and the inner shell. Now they will flop out like this. So they come out, those of you that's been on big cruise ships, you may not have seen them, but they're there. What are they there for? They're there to keep the ship from being blown over this way because it's so tall and there's so much weight there. 
So the stabilizers are put out. The stabilizers don't stop the waves, but it stops you from being capsized and losing all your cargo. So there's an automatic sensor on the modern day boats that's computer controlled. And whenever it senses the wind and it comes up to a certain degree, automatically those stabilizers come out on whichever side that it needs to be. If it's on the predestinated side or the grace side or the work side or the mercy side, whatever you need to be stabilized on, the Holy Ghost sense it and you'll have some man of God to come up there and pull that stabilizer out and go to try to stabilize in you in troublesome time. You don't need the stabilizers when you're in a smooth cruising water of the Caribbean. I mean, it's as calm as jello and you're sitting up there on the deck drinking you a big cold iced tea and there ain't no storm there. You don't need the stabilizer, but it's when the boat is reeling and rocking and it's not only just up and down like this, but it's this way. You see, it's nearly impossible because of the length of the boat to flip it this way. The most dangerous spot is here, back and forth. Don't you understand what Satan does? Don't you understand what he's trying to do? He's trying to wear us out. One blow after another, after another, after another. And what does God do? Use his Holy Ghost men of God and they'll come and And Satan huffs and he puffs and he says, you'll blow our boat away. But we say, you, sir, are a liar. So the stabilizer is out. To stop the wind? Nope. Stop the waves? Nope. But it stops me from capsizing. Right I say, oh God, oh God, oh God. And the Bible says, and the churches had rest. So you see in the book of Acts when the churches are going through so much trouble and God and the stabilizer leveled out the church in the book of Acts. Oh, praise God. Children, we're not going to sink. We're not going under. We're going up. We are not going under. We're going up. Let's pray together. Hallelujah. The prophet said the stabilizers has been put on the ship. Great fearful waves are out before us. But we know beyond that wave there we're nearing the shore. Just stay stable. Stay in the word. Stay with God. No matter how you feel or anything else, stay with the word. Praise God. They can't sink us. They can't drown us. You put us in the grave and we'll come out again. We'll crest every wave because the great chief captain is calling at the other side. Praise the Lord. Oh, Jesus. We're so glad we know the master of the wind. Satan knows enough about his position to know he can get in the wind and get in the storms and he'll certainly make havoc out of them. When you were on that little ship that night, Satan couldn't create the wind, but he could get in what you had already created. 
And it brought such a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples were so afraid. As a man, you laid in the back of the ship asleep. You were worn out. And then they finally remembered you were there. As a man, you woke up and wiped the sleep out of your eyes. As God, you put your foot on the braille of the ship. Hallelujah. And spoke to the wind which you had created, which the devil had got in, and said, peace, be still. And the wind recognized the voice of its creator. And the waves recognized the voice of their maker. Hallelujah. If the disciples could only have remembered, you gave them a promise. Let us go to the other side. But like us, they got so torn up. They got so torn up. Father, I pray you'd help us today. May we also remember you're in our ship too. And you're telling us we're going to the other side. Some of us will go to the other side before the others. We'll go by the way of the grave. But that doesn't change the journey. That doesn't change that we won't be there. Some will go by the way of the grave. Some will go by the body change. But we're going to the other side. May we not lose faith, lose courage, lose hope. But may we remember who is in our ship. And may we awaken Jesus in our own lives, in our own boats. Hallelujah. May we speak to him who is in us incarnated by the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Awaken in me, Lord. I thank you for every saint here. I thank you for every sheep, every child of God. I thank you for friends all over the world. I thank you for them praying for us and loving us during a difficult time. But Lord God, I don't want you just to awaken your reality and Brother Tim, Brother Ron, different brothers and sisters, but in me, my Lord, in me, awaken that reality. In me, Lord, I will get the ultimate source of your strength when I am coupled together O Lamb of God, and you awaken that part within me, then my faith can arise. My hope, my belief, may our souls be so saturated today in the presence of God. We'll leave this place with a new faith, a newfound courage, a newfound hope, Lord. Granted, I pray, Lord.
make the sun shine again. I know the master of the Hallelujah. Way. Well, let's sing it now.
Just sing that as you go this morning. 